Good evening. It's a blessing to have God's Word, and it is a blessing to open God's Word this evening. And we come now to that time in our worship when we look to God's Word. We do this not simply because it is our tradition. We do so because we believe that it is God's own Word, that it is God's true Word, His very Word, and that we as followers of the risen Christ should receive it as God's revelation to us. It's how we know what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us as His created, uh, His creation and as His people. As of last week, following the close of uh, Kurt's sermon, we had reached the halfway point in our journey through Galatians, so we're going to pick up in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. In chapter 3, just by means of a brief review, Paul has stated emphatically that salvation is by faith alone. He has taught that trusting in the law for salvation is pointless because we cannot hope to keep the law. And if you break the law in one way, you've broken it all. Disobedience, law-breaking, brings a curse. All covenant breakers, all lawbreakers are under a curse. However, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to bear the curse of sin that is rightly and justly ours. It was Jesus who hung on a tree, who was cursed for us, taking upon himself the curse of all of our law-breaking. And then after showing the complete futility of trusting in the law as a means of salvation, Paul anticipates the question that, that was asked, that he asks and poses to us, what is the law for? Well, he said that the law served to shut in the people of God under the old covenant and to detain them as a prison guard or as a pedagogue would. But he states gloriously towards the end of chapter 3, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then in the closing verses that, that Kurt dealt so well with last week, we, we heard about the unity that is ours in Christ. And in the final verse of chapter 3, Paul declares, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then he launches into chapter 4, which we'll read in just a moment. And in these first seven verses, it seems that he is seeking some clarification on that thought that he has just stated at the end of chapter 3. Remember that the, the chapter and verse um, uh, designations in Scripture are not inspired, but they're there for our help. Um, but we need to understand the context of this text that's before us. Paul takes us in these seven verses in, in, the, in the beginning, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. He takes us from showing that while an heir is young, in the natural sense, while an heir is young, he is no better than a slave. But then by the end of our text, Paul shows us what it means to be a very different kind of an heir, of an heir, an heir of God. So I want us to consider this text under three headings, life as a slave, the life-giving son, and life as a son, as a son of God. So let us pray, and then we'll read our text together. Lord, we bow before you. We need you. Lord, we feel so undone at times, and Lord, there are such rich truths in your word that, that we desire to, to bring them out, Lord, as precious treasure, as precious 
stones, Lord, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us grace to, to understand your word. Holy Spirit, as you have inspired your word, so illuminate it to our hearts and minds this evening, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though, <clears throat> though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Our text this evening is about adoption. Now that word may bring positive or negative emotion based upon your own knowledge and experience. Some have been adopted into families, unfortunately, that have actually been worse than the conditions that they have experienced prior. However, for many and hopefully most, adoption is a beautiful thing in which a child who has no parent no home, and with very little prospects of health and wholeness of, in their life, is placed into a loving family and given a new family, a new name, a new home, and then given all the rights and privileges that come with being a child in that family. I don't know if you received the, the updates that come from one of our missionaries, uh, friends of ours, John and Kelly Beth, that were here a couple years ago, they have been trying for most of that time to adopt a child. And we received news that uh, a few months ago that they, that they learned of a child that was going to become theirs, and, and they would post pictures of this child, but they would put a star over her face because the adoption had not been complete. And it was with great joy that they shared on Facebook just this week their child's face because the adoption had been complete and they felt like it was safe to post her picture. And oh, the joy that you could see in both her face as well as in John and Kelly Beth in receiving this child who was looking for a home. Adoption is the theme of our text and that God adopts a sinful and rebellious people. He calls them to himself and he makes them his own children, his own sons and daughters. Now the Apostle Paul has been very concerned to show these Galatians that their trust can only be in Christ and in Christ alone. As we mentioned in the introduction, there had been a couple metaphors of what the law was there and how it was used under the Old Covenant. He spoke of it as a prison guard, that it kept the people under guard. It kept them hemmed in, if you will. It was also a pedagogue in that it pointed out all of their faults, yet it was ineffective in, in remedying those faults. It could do nothing for their sins. It could only point out their sins. And here Paul gives us one more metaphor. He compares life under the law to the life of a child. A child who 
must be the, the child of a very wealthy person, a very wealthy family, yet he's under guardians and managers, our text says, until the days of his childhood are past. And because of that, he has no real status. He's really no different than a slave. Perhaps you've known of, of young people that have inherited a vast fortune when they were really too young to handle it. And often it gets wasted on riotous living. A fortune that a, a man could spend decades in building can be gone in months. And that's why in Paul's day, and, and sometimes in our own day as well, a wealthy man would hire a guardian or manager to oversee the wealth and his, his estates and ensure that it was not passed along too quickly to a son who wasn't ready to handle it. A son who was underage in the time of his minority, as they call it. And in that time, he had very little rights. He was not much different from a servant, even though he was lord of all and would one day inherit his father's fortune. He was called the young master. Master because one day the fortune would be his. He was called young to keep him in his place. And the situation would last as long as the father thought necessary until the date set by the father in which he thought the young man was mature enough to handle the family wealth and lands, and not simply to live for himself. But in the interim, the young man is no different than a slave. He may even feel like one, as he was waiting for the appropriate time to receive the promised inheritance. And Paul is saying that the time under the law plays a similar role. In the story of redemptive history, he says in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now this term is somewhat loaded, the elementary principles of the world, as, as, as they say, much ink has been spilt about what, what that actually means, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it in its most, most basic meaning. In Greek culture, it was the basic elements of which things were made. What they saw is the, the basic matter of all substances, earth, water, fire, and air. Paul used it, if you remember, in Colossians when he wrote this warning where he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The author of Hebrews used it in chapter 5 when in speaking about the elementary principles of understanding God's Word. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. It's the same Greek word that's used there. So it can be used positively or negatively. It certainly refers to the basic elements or first principles. The the Puritans seem to enjoy speaking of Israel under the law as a time of their minority. William Perkins said this about Israel. It says that Israel was a little school set up in the corner of the world. The law of Moses was, as it were, an ABC or primer in which Christ was revealed to the world in a dark and obscure manner, especially to the Jews. So he saw that. William Perkins seemed to see the law as the ABCs as grammar school, if you will, of, of the principles of God. But grammar school has its limits. There's only so much you can learn in elementary school. 
However, the Judaizers were looking at these basic elements, these ABCs, as something to be added to Christ. However, we know, and they should have known, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. As one commentator said, for the Galatians to go back to the law would be like a PhD repeating kindergarten to work on his alphabet. And that's almost like what the Judaizers were trying to do. Just as they were kept in and kept under the law, they were enslaved by the law. And going back was a step towards slavery, not freedom. But God did not leave Israel in this bondage. No, they were not left to remain in slavery to sin and to the law. God sent His Son. And that brings us to our second point, the life-giving Son. I realized during the sermon this morning, my second point is nearly the same as Fred's, but, but with a very different take and, and a different emphasis. Verse 4 is a glorious truth, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There is so much packed into verses 4 and 5 here. We see that Christ came in the fullness of time. Some have looked at that and seen this term as referring to the fact of of the, the peace, the relative peace that was enjoyed in the earth at the time in which Christ came. The Romans had built roads and travel was much easier than it had been in centuries past. And people look at that and they say, well, the gospel could go forth in, in, with, with much more speed than it, than it could in centuries past. And there's truth to that. Some have pointed to the fact that there was a common language of trade that was known and used in many countries. And that is true as well. And I think that is part of it. But even though there are logistical Uh, ways in which we can consider this phrase, the fullness of time, I think it's more spiritual and we need to think of it in a spiritual and a redemptive sense that Christ came at just the right time. Just as the Father gives the fulfillment of the inheritance to the Son when and only when He is ready, so our Heavenly Father gave His Son to the world when it was ready. In our modern way of thinking, we might think that the saints of the Old Covenant probably grew tired of waiting. They did wait long for Christ. We see the first mention of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15. Israel of old was told to look for a prophet like Moses who would come. They were given saviors, small s saviors, in the form of Joshua and the judges. Things that would point them to Christ. They were given a king who pointed them to the true king who would be of the tribe of David. Then Solomon, the son of the man after God's own heart, built the temple, the glorious place of God's presence, and that was a golden age in Israel's history, yet it was not the fullness of time. That temple, of course, was destroyed, and after many years, another temple was built and seemed to be a shell of the first temple. And even under the exile, the people of God longed to be in the place where they could worship God as He had commanded. They longed to know God, and they longed to see the fulfillment of the covenant promised by Jeremiah, who said that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the law, the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They looked for the fulfillment of that promise. They looked for the fulfillment, the, the fullness of time in which Christ came. And even though the patience of these saints of old seemed to endure long, in the years and, and even in the months, it seems, leading up to the advent of our Lord, it seems that the expectation was building to an apex. So much so that the aged Saint Simeon, we read in Luke 2, who was full of the Holy Spirit, had received the promise that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The fullness of time had come. Jesus knew of this expectation and fulfillment when he introduced his own ministry in Mark 1, and he said, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came in the fullness of time. He came at just the right time. We don't understand all of it, but in the fullness of time, he came. This these verses, as we said, are so packed with such rich truths. We see here that this verse teaches us about Christ's deity. It says that God sent forth His Son. He was sent by the Father. He was not created by God and placed upon the earth. He was sent from God. He existed before He arrived upon the earth. He was with the Father he existed before he was sent. Of course, Jesus went willingly. He came and willingly laid down his life to save a people for his own. But he was sent by God to the world. We see also his humanity. This verse highlights that. He was born of a woman. His birth occurred naturally. He did not arrive in a, in a, flame, a flaming chariot. He was born naturally in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. Christ is God, and Christ became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin, our catechism says. He was born under the law. This verse teaches this as well. He lived and breathed under the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. He went to the temple, he worshipped God as the law required. He kept the feasts and he obeyed God's law in every way. Finally, these verses 4 and 5 tell us why he came. He came to redeem. His atoning death paid the full penalty of our sins. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteous. And finally, he came to adopt this is the other reason that our text gives us that Jesus came, that, that we who are spiritually dead orphans might be brought into God's family by adoption. And that leads us to our third and final point, life as a son. Life as a son or daughter of God. In this great salvation that is ours in Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. And, and the, the, the apostle here tells us that that is accomplished through the gift of the Spirit given to us and the work of the Spirit in us. Romans 8 is a parallel passage speaking of, of adoption, and it says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are sons. We are sons of God and we have the spirit. But what does the spirit do? Now, there's much that could be said here, and I do not intend to say everything that can be said about the work of the Spirit in adopting us into God's family. But just a few things that I think we need to focus on and meditate on, and hopefully take with us into this week to think about what it means to be a child of God. The Spirit gives us assurance. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8, 16. It is by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit working in us that we know that we are children of God. The Spirit gives us faith in God and and enables us to walk in holiness and obedience. The Spirit unites us to Christ. Paul uses this term, in Christ, all throughout his epistles. And, And while it seems a little bit hard to fully completely understand and and appreciate it has many nuances it it means that we are joined to Christ that we somehow are are organically connected to him we are planted together with him so that the death that Jesus died we died and we died to the power of sin the spirit also enables us to die to sin When we are adopted into God's family, we are given the power to say no to sin. It was once our master. We were its slave, but now sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6, 14. It doesn't mean that we're free from all temptation or that we never feel the presence of sin or that we're never tempted by the power of sin But it does mean that we have a new relationship to sin because we have a new relationship to our Savior. And we are a son of God. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Spirit also enables us to live to righteousness. Paul says in Romans 6 that the believer is now to recognize that he has been that slave to sin. But now he can wholly and willingly commit himself to God as his father, as a love slave of righteousness. We do this by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Finally, the Spirit enables us to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, we'll see in, in later in this uh, book, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those should be the marks of believers. All those should be the marks of those who call themselves sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into God's family, and those should be the things that mark our lives. This text tells us that Because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This term, term, Abba, is the most intimate of names for one's father. Some have said it's like saying, Daddy. It was the term that Jesus used in Gethsemane when he pleaded with his father, when he faced the agony on the cross. Really, in in the quick look that I took of that term, it is that phrase there in Mark that's used 
when Jesus was in Gethsemane, here in our text, and then there in Romans that we read earlier, that we get to use that phrase that Jesus used with his father. Remember that when Jesus rose from the dead and, and he was there in the garden and, and Mary did not know him yet, he said, go tell my brothers. And he told her what to tell them. He was identifying with us. We are a brother of Jesus Christ. We are a son of God if we are in Christ. We can use that term. The Spirit also helps us to pray. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, it says in Romans. We have access to the throne of grace that Christ, our elder brother, has ascended into heaven and is there now making intercession for us. As God's children, we are pitied, protected, and sometimes chastened. A father pities his children. A father recognizes that, that they cannot do everything that an adult can. He is there to protect his children. And when needed, a good father chastens his children. Yet we are never cast off, but we are sealed to the day of redemption. But this text tells us in verse 7 that you are no longer a slave. Why do we need to be told that we're no longer a slave? Well, I think the Galatians, he was telling them that y'all are slaves to the law because you're adding to the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ alone. And you're, and you're bringing yourself into bondage. You're bringing yourself into slavery I think we can do that when we try to add something to the salvation that is ours. If, if, we, if we think there's something we must do to add to salvation, we're really no better than the Judaizers. But sometimes, saints of God, I think that we, we are influenced so much by the world that we become slaves to sin. Because we fail to recognize the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. The days of slavery are past. Romans 6.13 says, says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Finally, it says that we're not a slave, we're a son, and if a son, then an heir of God. What does it mean to be an heir of God? What does it mean to be adopted into a new family? Well, the privileges of adoption are many. Think about it. You are given a new name. The name that you had before is, is perhaps incorporated into your new name, but you are given a new name. You take upon yourself the family name. As, I was, as, as our service was starting this morning, I was looking out, even, even in the few numbers that we have this evening, I see people from many different countries. And, and while our backgrounds are very different, the thing that we have in common is greater than the differences that we have because of our cultural or language barriers. Because if we are in Christ, 
If we are part of God's family, that's our primary identification. And that should be what we are most passionate about. Now, we can be passionate about other things. We can, we can love our culture. We can love our food. We can, we can speak the language of our, of our native country to help our children learn it or, or however it is that you do that. But our identity in Christ should be the thing that holds us together as the people of God. We are given a new name and a new family as well. And again, our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ is, 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 a, is a beautiful and a wonderful thing. I, um, I, I, this is not something that's real common in, in Presbyterian circles to, tell, to call people brother or sister. I'm not saying that we necessarily should start that, but I do appreciate that. Maybe it's just kind of some Baptist roots that I've got, Daryl, but, but because we are, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are a family, and we need to recognize that, and we need to love one another in such a way. We're given a new name, a new family. We're given a new record. Just as a child that is adopted into a new family receives the, the official papers to certify that adoption, so we receive a new record. Before I was adopted into God's family, I had a record of guilt that showed only that I justly deserved God's wrath and displeasure. But now I have a new record. My record shows that someone else bore my sin, and His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, has been imputed to me. And if you are God's child, if you are part of God's family, that record is yours as well. That's your birth certificate, that Christ's righteousness is yours imputed to you by grace in Christ. We are given a new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Everything becomes new when you're taken into God's family. Finally, we're given a new home. For those who have repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, they are part of God's family. They have God's seal upon them because they are Christ's. They are His. He will never let them go. Their record has been cleansed and expunged. They're no longer condemned by sin. They're no longer under the power of sin. They've been given a new life and they will be given a new home. And if you are here tonight part of God's family, the family of God, you look forward to a new home. This world is not your home. You're only passing through. You're only preparing for your long home. Jesus said that he would go and prepare a place for you and, and he will come again and he will receive us unto himself that where he is, there we may be also forever with our Father, with our family in heaven. I hope that's your testimony this evening. I hope that you can say that you are a child of God. What an enormous privilege that is. We throw that language around. I think that I'm guilty of that, that, that we say that and we, yeah, that's good, but what does that really mean? That should blow our minds when we really think about it, that we're children of God. But if you can't say that, if that's not your testimony, I invite you tonight to come to Christ. Come to Christ and repent of your sins and trust in the work that he has done to bring his sons and daughters to himself. 
Trust in the work of Christ to, to cleanse you of your sin and to be part of God's family. Amen. Let us pray.